I want to read from the Gospel of Mark, the 10th chapter. Here, Jesus and the disciples are making their way along the road to Jerusalem. And a very important conversation takes place. Listen for God's word for you. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He said to them, Well, what is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I'm baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now when the ten other disciples heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? And so, dear God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Recently, I heard the very reverend Professor Ian Torrance, who was the former president of Princeton Theological Seminary. He's now back in Scotland at Aberdeen, and he is the chaplain to the Queen of England when she is in Scotland. And he was here in worship last Sunday. He and his wife Morag were here while I was on the East Coast. But while I was with him, he shared this story about St. Lawrence. The very Reverend Professor Ian Torrance is a patristics scholar, so that early church history is his field. When Sixtus became Pope in 257, he ordained St. Lawrence as a deacon. And though St. Lawrence was still quite young at the time, he appointed him first among the seven deacons who served in the patriarchal church. So he was known as the Archdeacon of Rome. It was a position of great trust that included care of the treasury for the church, all the riches that the church had, and the distribution of alms to the poor. 
Roman authorities at that time had established a norm that according to which all Christians who had been denounced must be executed and their goods were confiscated by the imperial treasury. So at the beginning of August 258, the emperor Valerian issued an edict that all bishops and priests and deacons should be put to death. Sixtus, the Pope, was captured on August the 6th, 258, at a cemetery where he was celebrating the Mass and he was executed. And after the death of Sixtus, the prefect of Rome demanded that St. Lawrence turn over the riches of the church. St. Ambrose is the first or the earliest source to tell the tale that St. Lawrence asked for three days to gather together the wealth of the church. He worked swiftly to distribute as much church property as he could to the poor so as to prevent it being seized by the prefect. And on the third day, he headed a small delegation and he presented himself to the prefect with this delegation. And when he was ordered to give over the treasures of the church, he presented the poor... He presented the crippled, the blind, and the suffering. And he said, these are the true riches of the church. One account records him declaring to the prefect, the church is truly rich. Far richer than your emperor. Well, this act of defiance led directly to his martyrdom on August the 10th. He was the last of the seven deacons to suffer a martyr's death. Sometimes a little defiance can be useful. We're in the midst of stewardship this month, and I have no interest in being martyred. But to remember that there was a time in the church's life in which it cost everything to claim faith in Jesus Christ. And I remember as I read the newspaper today that that time is not so distant. There are places in the world today where it costs brothers and sisters in Christ everything to claim faith in Jesus Christ. There is persecution. But I think St. Lawrence understood something about the church that James and John just didn't understand, at least not at the time that this conversation took place with Jesus. I just returned from Princeton Seminary where I was uh, part of a board meeting. We used to say in Princeton that Princeton Seminary sends their graduates out into the world to do good. Princeton University sends their graduates out in the world to do very good. <laughs> and I think this text of the Gospel of Mark tells the story of James and John, two disciples, two brothers who are called elsewhere the sons of thunder, who wanted to do very good. One of the other Gospels tells the story that it's their mother 
who requests special treatment and this honor for her sons. But Mark's gospel isn't afraid to portray the disciples as these kind of spiritual dunderheads. Throughout the gospel, there's this recurring pattern. Jesus announces some truth, and the disciples misunderstand it, so they receive further instruction, and often they still don't get it. And it makes me think there's hope for me. I may be a spiritual dunderhead, but the Lord is patient with people like me and James and John and maybe you too. In this case, Jesus and the disciples are on their way to Jerusalem, and Jesus has just announced that he's going to be mocked and spit upon and flogged and killed, and after three days he'll rise again. They just didn't get it. James and John didn't understand what Jesus meant just a few verses earlier in this gospel. But many who, were, who are first will be last, and the last will be first. You see, James and John wanted to be first. They're primarily interested in their own self-advancement. And you can almost hear Jesus sigh in the text. Grant us to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, says Jesus. Because on my right and on my left will be two crosses. You don't get it. I wonder what the conversation must have been like along the road to Jerusalem these two brothers had to have hatched this plan at some point, rehearsed for the moment when Jesus would be alone and the other disciples were just far enough away that they wouldn't be able to hear. Surely they would have anticipated that the others would have taken some exception to their request. And the story does read that when the ten heard this, they became angry with James and John, and no surprise there, our longing for recognition often means we climb over others aggressively on our way to some special honor somewhere. It even happens among us ministers. And I'm guessing that the older of the two brothers would have said, look, let me do the talking. And so these sons of thunder expose their pretensions to greatness. They expose themselves, they expose us and our longings for recognition too. We also have distanced ourselves from others on our way to greatness. We too have damaged community with our self-seeking, with our self-absorption, with our self-advancing agendas. We often, too often, seek our own advantage without regard for others. Today, we wonder, will Vice President Joe Biden join the race for president? Disrupt the field of the Democrats? Will Paul Ryan reconsider and become the Speaker of the House? Will USC ever become a great football program again? Sorry about that game yesterday. 
Will Don Mattingly keep his job? Tough week for sports in L.A., hasn't it? We're fascinated with winners. We love greatness. We endlessly pursue competition to determine who is the best, the brightest, the richest, the most attractive. And we're not, when we're not watching the news, we're often measuring our own success. We wonder whose career is more successful or whose kids are getting into the better colleges or who is managing the pressures of family and career or who has the best vacations, the most beautiful home. We continually measure ourselves and we rarely measure up. Now ambition is defined by Webster's Dictionary as an ardent desire for rank and fame or power. Now, alternately and secondarily, it's defined as the, de the desire to achieve a particular end. And I think it's the difference between those two definitions that our text is driving at today. One definition is about striving for personal gain, for some achievement or some title that brings with it the marks of personal success. And the other has a different view altogether, a goal that's irrespective of one's own advantage, even a goal that may benefit others at one's expense. Now, don't get me wrong. I think people with personal ambition achieve remarkable results. Athletes, corporate executives, politicians, entertainers, they all make sacrifices to achieve their goals and we're impressed with ambitious people. But today, reality TV parades before us public images of people who will win at any cost. We constantly measure who's on top, who's number one, the wealthiest, the most talented, the most attractive, the brightest, the most promising, the strongest, the most clever, the most, the best, you fill in the blank. But for all of our measuring, rarely do we measure up. So many of us live with a constant sense of our own inadequacy and our failures are often ever before us. Our ambition can move beyond the desire to achieve something, and it can become an ardent desire for rank and fame or power. It did for James and John. And if we become preoccupied with being the best or having the best, and we seek special seats of honor for ourselves, it can become so destructive. Ambition has to be in check within certain boundaries. The Wall Street Journal recently ran an article about Iftikhar Ahmed from India. A success story graduated from Harvard Business School, began his career with Goldman Sachs, became a partner in one of the oldest 
and most renowned capital, uh, venture capital firms in the country. And now he's hiding somewhere in India after allegedly stealing $65 million. He and his wife were the darlings of New York City philanthropy, attending fundraisers in the society pages, riding a wave of success. But ambition crossed the line. By contrast, faith in Christ calls us to serve others, not for our own aggrandizement and accomplishment. Often it's in serving others that we find our greatest joy. And we become rich ourselves with relationships and affection and kindnesses of all varieties. So as an act of defiance, and as a way of declaring that true life, real human life, comes from the hand of God and not by what we make of it, we commit ourselves to Jesus Christ and we bring before Him the first fruits of our harvest. As a declaration of defiance to say we belong to another kingdom. I picked up a card in a card shop the other day and it read, it's not what we have in our lives, but who we have in our lives that counts. I think James and John maybe learned that that day. I hope you have some friends in your life, some people with whom you relate, who don't increase your prestige. Maybe some of the world's forgotten. Some of those who have lost their way. And they don't bring any advantage to your life to be in relationship with you. Because these, the poor, the forgotten, the crippled, the lame, are the treasures of the church. And you'd miss out on a remarkable treasure. I've said it before and I'll say it again. We may not be all we wish we were, but we are so much more than we think we are because we're loved by a God who is greater than we know. True greatness is always accompanied by humility. And there's still hope for spiritual dunderheads like me. Thanks be to God. Amen.